Esther chapter 4, as we continue our study of this book, asking the question, what is it like to live life as exiles? Esther has many lessons to teach us. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Esther 4, beginning in verse 1, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. Many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also came and gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for the destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the peoples of the king's provinces know that if a man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for just for such a time as this. The word of the Lord. Father, help us this morning. Who knows? Maybe you have us in the place in life that you have us for a purpose. Whether we see it or not, Lord, would you shape our lives around these thoughts of your providence, of your hand being at work, Lord. Most of all, may we see our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, this morning. Would you be pleased to do this? We pray in his name. Amen. may be seated. So far in Esther, we've seen the rise of two powers. The first one is a violent power. 
the Persian Empire. Power and wealth of this king have been on display since chapter 1. Later in chapter 2, this power gets leveraged against women in vile ways. Sending, um, sending men throughout the provinces to find all the young, beautiful virgins that would then stock a harem for the evil king. Then last week in chapter 3, we see an escalation of power and violence when Haman declares war, not just on Mordecai because Mordecai is unwilling to bow to him, but declares the ban on all the Jews throughout the land. Complete and utter destruction. The second power that has been on display on the other side, we see Mordecai, a devout Jew and his orphaned cousin, Esther. What are they and who are they in comparison with the evil of, and the power and the resources of the king and Haman? We've seen that Esther was chosen for the harem. More than that, she has been chosen by the king to be queen. Mordecai has some standing with the court. He apparently goes to his day job at the king's gate, like the courthouse. He has some standing in the court, but comparatively, Mordecai and Esther, they look weak. What power do they have? What are gonna, what's going to happen when these two forces crash together one very powerful and deadly power with the power of the Holocaust coming and these two seemingly insignificant Jews under a sentence of death. And Esther 4 will observe this back and forth between Mordecai and Esther as this bombshell of a decree has, has hit and it, it's going across the Persian Empire. Before we jump into the text, I want to make an observation application. Mordecai and Esther, it should be noted, aren't ministers. Mordecai is not a pastor and Esther is not a missionary. There's something utterly ordinary about their lives. In fact, we can see that though the name of God is not here, we know that God is at work, but he's at work through ordinary people. With ordinary vocations. Some of you here this morning might think that to do something significant for the kingdom of God means that you have to become a pastor or maybe a missionary. Maybe you need some sort of full-time employment to, to serve God. And, and I think one of the lessons that we see, especially coming into chapter 4 of Esther, is these are utterly ordinary people, and God is going to leverage them to do extraordinary things. They're not in full-time mission work. 
kingdom of God needs Christians in the workplace. When you think of importance in the kingdom of God, do you ever think about Joseph who rose to power as an administrator? Do you ever think of Nehemiah who was an architect, project manager, and wall builder? I could go on and on and on. Here, here's the first thought and application is don't despise your vocation or where God has you. And don't think he can't use you to, to love others and to, to share hope with them. Mordecai isn't a professional Jew and neither is Esther. This is their life. It's simply who they are. God is working with ordinary citizens in Susa. Mordecai evidently has, again, this normal job with access to the king's gate. He's there. We see him there on a regular basis. We aren't told much about Esther before her being taken into the harem, but she is now in a place to leverage her position, utterly ordinary. We're not told anything extraordinary about her other than her beauty. God is going to leverage all things for his glory. And the application here is a simple one. You don't have to be a pastor, an elder, or a deacon in the church to use your gifts in service of God. How are you doing that as a businessman? How are you doing that as a teacher or an administrator? How are you thinking about God's sovereign hand at work every single day in what you do. So last week we left off with this decree coming from the king's signet ring that declared this, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods scene was actually darker than that. So this decree goes out and it, the cities are in an uproar. This is, this is going to kill a whole lot of people. It's going to be a violent time for the entire Persian Empire. And the last snapshot we get is the king and Haman drinking. They're throwing a party. This week, we'll look at the, the fallout of this decree. We'll look at Mordecai's plea and Esther's response. First, the fallout. What would happen if a decree suddenly came up that your people, your family line, on this day, 10 months down the road, you're all going to die? Everyone in your family is to die. The text reads, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes, a, a, a huge sign of distress and mourning, outward signs of inward lament. This would have been common. To, you want the outside to express what's going on on the inside. So torn clothes, uncomfortable sackcloth, clothing for the poor, destitute. Verse 3 tells us that Jews in every province had the same reaction. 
They're all mourning and weeping. What, what would, again, how would you react to something like this coming down the pipe, coming from the king's own office with his signet ring stamped on it? Your entire family has to die. So Mordecai goes to the king's gate to mourn publicly, but he doesn't go in as you aren't allowed to go in before the king wearing sackcloth. It's not allowed. So he stands outside wailing, mourning, and looking like a person in mourning, and Esther gets wind of it. She sends the king's eunuch assigned to her, Hathak, to get a report. What in the world is going on with Mordecai? Why is he dressed like this at the king's gate? Why is he lamenting? She, she apparently doesn't know. Verse 8, Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for the destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. Everyone, it should show you the kind of position that Esther was in. It's kind of like prison. Everyone else in the empire knows but apparently news had not spread to the harem of the king. She's a prisoner. So Mordecai lets her know, and then he says, hey, you're going to have to out yourself. I remember before he had said, just withhold this fact about yourself. We're reminded the king doesn't know yet that Esther is actually Hadassah, the Jew. Notice also that Mordecai understands that Esther is there for a reason. He's employing her to go to the king. Please go and beg for favor on behalf of the people. Esther gives a response. Mordecai, maybe you're looking over this tiny little problem, this tiny little detail with me doing that. She basically says two things. One, if I go in unannounced, unrequested before the king, and he doesn't bless me, the only thing that happens there is death. That's a death sentence. It's a capital offense to come before the king if he has not requested an audience. And she says a second thing. Did you notice it in there? She said, I haven't been with the king. I haven't been invited in for 30 days. The image we get from Esther is one of complete terror. She's horrified. You're asking me to go in and it can mean death. I haven't been summoned. Remember too that Esther is only there because the previous queen, Vashti, you remember her? She grew too bold and lost her position utterly. And now Esther is being asked to do something bold, not to reject a summons from the king, but to go without being summoned. She knows good and well that she's risking everything. Including her own life. And the second reality of I haven't been summoned by the king for 30 days, we, we, know, that the, we know that the king is immoral. We're meant to know that. We're, we're meant to know that he is not sleeping alone. He, 
he is not sleeping alone these 30 days. Esther is saying this, I may be out of his favor, I don't know. He hasn't summoned me for 30 days. It's not good. He might have forgotten about me already, Esther could be saying. It would be foolish, in other words, the sum of both of those things, it would be utterly foolish. I'm probably going to die. And here we come to the heart and center of the narrative. We'll get the reversals next week. But this is the center of what's going on in the hearts of Mordecai and Esther. This news from Esther comes verses 13 and 14. Mordecai says, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai replies to Esther in basically three ways. First, you won't escape this condemnation by remaining silent. Esther, you have to risk either way. If you don't go in and say something, you're going to die. If you do go in, you could die. Either way, your identity won't stay hidden, even though you are a queen. We noted earlier that living in exile, Esther has two identities. Esther, the beautiful young virgin... Esther in the harem of the king, Esther the queen, but she also has another identity, Hadassah, the Jewish orphan, raised by a devout cousin Mordecai, even in the heart of the capital city of Susa, she was a Jew, a Persian beauty. She had been brought in to the king and had been selected to become the top in the land, Mordecai is telling her. This isn't going to last, Esther. Either way, either way, you can die. Her identity as the people of God will will inevitably come out. I think there are several ways that we're being invited to see this and, and think about this. One clear application that we can make is it's impossible to live forever simultaneously and publicly as a pagan and privately as a Christian. Eventually, these identities come crashing down. These two identities that, look, we we don't have this national identity. It's not the same as Esther. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that it's tempting as Christians to have these two identities. I think one lesson from Mordecai to Esther is that won't last. Either one identity is going to win out over the other. How about you and me? Are we living life as exiles in a world utterly separate from who we are as the people of God? It would be easy to live life as an exile as long as 
our lives look exactly like the world around us and conform perfectly to the world around us. What Mordecai is saying is, Esther, you know that's impossible. In Matthew 6, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gets around to talking about money. He says this, and I think it applies more broadly. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. There's no place for a split or dual identity, even as children of God living in exile, Esther has a choice to make. Will she love this palace and all that comes with it, or will she risk her life? We have this similar choice every day. This is an issue for every single one of us. Will we find our ultimate identity and the one that we've been given by God, or will we find our identity in the things of this world? Will we out ourselves as the people of God, or do we think that we're okay living a double life? I think Mordecai is saying to Esther, Esther, it's not going to last. You can't have it both ways. There's, there's no more middle ground left, life and death. It's on the line, Esther. We're to lose our lives for the sake of Christ in order that we find our true life. The second thing Mordecai is saying is this. Even if you are silent, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. I love that he says that. There's no lack of grace. Mordecai knows that God is utterly powerful. What, what an amazing statement of his trust in God. Utterly unshakable hope. Esther, even if you don't go, God is going to save his people. We've said it many times that God's name is not mentioned at all in this book. However, you can't read this. You can't see a statement like this and not think that there is tremendous faith and trust in God. His fingerprints are all over the book. Yes, he doesn't invoke the name of God. Esther, no matter what you do, God is going to deliver his people. Mordecai and Esther and all the Jews are under a death sentence. From the most powerful king in the most powerful kingdom in the world. And Mordecai says, salvation is coming. God will deliver. Mordecai is resting in the reality that he has grown up with and been taught God is a covenant-keeping God. And we are his people. And that will never, ever, ever change. Listen to the way that certain hope shapes his life. Even if you don't say anything, Esther. Here's one option. Esther, you could go to the king, but even if you don't, God is going to save. What would it be to live life with that certain faith? No matter how bleak the situation would become, God was always going to save his people. 
And in Christ, we have the yes and amen to that reality. He has done what it takes to save his people. So what does it mean to live as an exile in the world? It means that we have a certain hope that God will deliver his people. No matter how bad things look or how bad things get, a certain hope. Esther, even if you don't go to the king, God is going to deliver his people. The third thing Mordecai tells Esther, I love this, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Who knows? What an expression of faith. Esther, deliverance is coming to the Jews no matter what you do, but who knows? It could be from you. You could be those means in this very situation that God has put you in in place already. Mordecai looks at the whole scene and and wonders at the providence of God. What, What a great way to think about providence. Who knows? Who knows? His words actually mirror one of the early prophets, Joel and Joel 2. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent. It sounds like Mordecai is living out Joel 2. No doubt he had heard this read. He's living it out, ripping his clothes and wondering out loud, who knows? Who knows, Esther? Maybe all your history, your whole life, all the terrible things that have happened to you, losing your parents, all the events that brought you into this harem and this terrible situation, you being elevated to the place of Queen Esther, who knows? God may have moved you here just for this purpose. Think of her life, raised by a cousin, orphaned, beautiful, all the unjust things that she has gone through, all the wrong done to her by the the king. Mordecai is saying, who knows, Esther, you could be here for this purpose. Notice how Mordecai is using the sovereignty of God. His faith is bolstered. Maybe God is up to something here. He trusts God's plan. David Strain says this about trusting divine sovereignty. It is not a theological bludgeon. So here, I'm going to step back for a minute. We trust that God is sovereign over all things. Now, listen to this. It is not a theological bludgeon with which to beat other Christians. It is not a shibboleth by which we test for orthodoxy. It is a refuge in which to rest secure, a safe harbor in which to anchor your faith amidst every trial, a hiding place in the midst of the storm, end quote. How do you view the sovereignty of God? Yeah, we have right doctrine, but do we use it as a club to beat others over the head? Or is it the litmus test that we run around testing others with? No, I think we're being shown the way right here by Mordecai. The Lord is going to provide. It's a way that we can find rest when 
the, the storm of life is swirling around us and we're in the middle of it, we can rest that God is in control. In this very moment, I don't know what situation or circumstance you are in. You're being invited to trust in the sovereign hand of God in that situation. It's not an accident that you are where you are. From Mordecai's plea, we go to Esther's response. Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king. Those that it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Gather everybody in this city, Mordecai. Go tell all the Jews who are here, we're going to fast for three days. Esther is asking for solidarity. She's not going to do this alone. She's asking to be identified with the people. After she makes all these preparations, she'll go before the king and she'll be willing even to die. I think this is beautiful in two distinct ways. Esther is pointing the way to what is needed most in this life. One, she is identifying with her people. She's outing herself. In three days, I'm going to go and I'm going to tell the king who I really am. And she's willing to do that for the rest of the people. Again, two, two very important ways, things that we need to see in this text if we're going to see Jesus. One, she identified with her people. And two, she goes to the king as a mediator, even though it meant risking her own life. Can you clearly see that even in this book, though it never mentions the name of God, we are taken from Esther to Jesus Christ, our Messiah. You see, because ever since the fall of man, we have been estranged from God. Enemies of God. Because of sin. We were made by God originally in the garden, holy and happy. Our first parents fell from that estate. And since then, there has been this gulf between us and the true and living God. And God has done two things to solve that problem. One, he had to identify with us. God couldn't just snap his fingers or say, you're off the hook, you're good. He had to identify with us. Just as Esther is going to have to identify herself with her people, God had to do that with us. And he does it in the person of Jesus Christ. Because of our failure, we needed a perfect man to go before us. God identifies with his people, but more than that, he, he lives for us, yes, but he dies as a mediator between God and men. He sacrifices his own life to give us life. He didn't say, he, he doesn't say, if I die, I die. He says, when I die, 
I'm going to die for them. He knows that his death is certain. But he does it to mediate between us and God. 1 Timothy 2. We heard it already. There is one God and one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. Philippians 2 says that not only did Christ take on the form of a servant, he was also willing to die. There, again, there is no if. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I think with Esther, we're being pointed to the, the great mediator, our Lord Jesus Christ, utterly identifying with us. Philippians 2 Becoming man, but more than that, not just becoming man, willingly obeying to the point of death, even death on a cross. Just as Esther's appeal won the favor of the king, so the blood of Christ has utterly paid the debt we owe to God. When Jesus was crushed on the, the cross, he atoned for our sin. This series, we're asking, what does it mean for us to live as the people of God in exile? I think the first application is not dare to be an Esther. That would be a terrible ask. Put yourself in the harem of a powerful king. Hope that you're picked. No, the, the, the answer in Esther is not dare to be an Esther. It's look at the hand of God and what he's willing, what God does to save his people. And look at how he does it. I think the lesson of Esther should point us ahead to Christ, our great mediator, the one who takes our place. It's exactly what Esther's going to go in and do. And she's even going to be willing to die. And Jesus is willing. Not just on the off chance that he might die, he willingly lays his life down. Briefly, I think we can apply this in a few ways. We see how Christ himself in his earthly ministry identified with the poor in the world in order to mediate for them. Time and time again, he identifies as the poor. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Though Esther had all the leverage she could ever want, she risked all of her power and all of her position to save others that she didn't even know. I think she's pointing ahead to Jesus, who though he was rich, he became poor, so that we who are poor might become rich in him. How can we live this out in life? What are some ways that we can express this kind of grace to the people around us? Who are the people that God is calling us to identify with in order to take on their burdens? Another way we can apply this is ask the question, what is greatness? One commentator notes, this is a, a stunning transition that before Queen Esther identified with the people, she was called Queen Esther one time. After this identifying with the people of God and going before the king, 13 times in the rest of the book. 
I think we're being shown that her true greatness is when she's willing to, to die for others in order to mediate for them. The true greatness is not her outward beauty. It's not the fact that she had to live in this harem and that she was tapped as queen. True greatness is her willingness to die for others. Do we see the reality of that in the person of Christ? The greatest person who ever lived. No one even comes close. And he takes all of that power and all of that majesty and says, I will go to the cross. I will suffer a shameful death for others. It's, it's beautiful. There's nothing greater ever in the world. Here's Esther's greatness, taking her power and utterly be willing to lay it down for the sake of others. I think living as exiles should give us cause to, to do things like that. So how do we live as exiles? I'll end with this. I think 1 Corinthians 1 answers in some really astonishing ways that line up with Esther. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you are powerful. Not many were noble of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world. To shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world. A young orphaned Jew to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not. The appearance of Christ naked and hung on a cross to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human might, might boast in the presence of God. Let's pray. Father, would you teach us these lessons? Especially as we live life in exile, Lord, would you have us identify with others in the world around us who have no power, no resources? Lord, may we open our mouths and speak of our mediator, you, Christ, our King. Would you shape us by these truths? May we learn the lessons of Esther well. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.